all that. Exodus chapter 1. We are actually going to be, uh, we're, today we're just going to look at the introductory paragraph to Exodus. Uh, this is not the pace that we'll keep for all of Exodus, like one paragraph at a time. As a matter of fact, I would encourage you for uh, next Sunday, if you want to read ahead, because that typically is one of the ways that we benefit or gain the most, is to have some familiarity with a passage that we're going to uh, review or rehearse or discuss. If for next week you want to read ahead, I would recommend that you read, say, let's see, 1, 8 through 2, 10. All right? This is going to be my way of sticking it back to JT to say, I'm going to take a big chunk of text next week, and I've already committed, it, committed uh, myself to it by acknowledging it here in your presence today. So 1.8 through 2.10, if you want to read that ahead of time. Look with me, though, at the opening paragraph of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and consider as we read these verses, that what we're seeing in this passage is a reminder of the fact that God fulfills His promises according to His plan. Not our plan, His plan. God fulfills His promises according to plan. Verse 1, now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were seventy in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation with him. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. This is the word of the Lord to us. Bow with me in prayer. Father, give us receptive hearts now, we ask, to your truth. May, be, may we be reminded that you are faithful to every promise that you have given to us as your people because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and the security that we find in your Holy Spirit. Amen. So the opening paragraph to Exodus is, is somewhat interesting because, with the exception of verse 7, almost everything that you have in verses 1 through 6, we've already read about in Genesis. It doesn't give us any new information. The, the one piece of, of new information that you get in verse 6 is that Joseph and his brothers died in Egypt. Otherwise, verses 1 through 6 are things that we have already seen. It, as a matter of fact, the, the first six words of Exodus in the Hebrew are exactly the same as the first six words from Genesis uh, 46.8, where there's another statement being made about the sons of Israel, the sons who come from Jacob. But of course, in saying that, the we're not to understand that this is just sort of a throwaway paragraph, right? It's not as if Moses sits down and begins to write and thinks, well, you know, every story, even the fairy tales start off uh, once upon a time. We've got to have some sort of introduction. I don't know what to do, so let's just copy and paste some from Exodus. And so he does that, and then after you get through verse 7, then verse 8, that's when the story really starts. That's not what's going on here. All right, one of the things that's going on in this opening paragraph, by virtue of the fact that it is repeating or relying so heavily on material that we've already read in Genesis, we're to understand that what we're reading in Exodus, not just in the opening paragraph, but the story of Exodus as a book, we need to be reading that story against the backdrop of the story of Genesis. In other words, the roots of the Exodus story are in Genesis. If, if you don't have some awareness or some grasp on what was happening in Genesis, at least at chapter 12 and on, you're not going to really be able to fully appreciate what's happening in the story of Exodus. 
And of course, the dramatic theme or the central theme of Genesis earlier than chapter 12, but it really comes into play prominently in chapter 12, is the recurring theme of God's promise to bring His blessing to creation through His people. So, the Exodus story is a story that can stand alone, that can be read in isolation, but in order to get the full impact or weight, to really be able to appreciate what it is that we're reading, we have to understand that the Exodus story flows out of the Genesis story. And the, the flow of the story is, starting with Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob, the fact that God promises to bless the family of Abraham in order that His blessing can come to all the families of the earth. And Exodus is now going to pick up that theme, even in this opening paragraph, and is going to build on that. So, even though the word or the term promise is not anywhere found in verses 1 through 7, it's not explicitly stated, that's implicitly what's lurking beneath the text. We're supposed to see God's promise at work. Let me, let me show you in the text how we know that to be the case. Start, if you're looking, if you're looking in, in your Bible, all right, you've got a little bookend phrase. I think uh, New American Standard, ESV, I think, does it well. I think NIV maybe changes the second occurrence of it, and so you miss it a little bit in the NIV. But the, the bookend phrase that you have in verse 1 and then in verse 7 is the sons of Israel. So, verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. And then down in verse 7, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Sons of Israel who came from Jacob, and then verse 7, sons of Israel who increased greatly. What we're seeing in that framing of the introductory paragraph is God's promise being fulfilled. And there are two ways in which the promise is being, filled, being fulfilled. One, of course, and, and most obvious, is that God's promise is being fulfilled to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His promise to the patriarchs that He was going to give them many descendants, that He was going to make them a company of, of many people. That is what we're seeing in this opening paragraph, that that promise came to fruition. All right, here's why Genesis is so helpful to get us to appreciate what's being said here. Remember, Abraham enters into the scene as a man who is already 75 years old. His wife is 65 years old, and on top of already being somewhat advanced in years, right, age is all perspective, I understand, but somewhat advanced in years, we'll say, Sarah is also barren. And God comes to this man with a barren wife and says, I will give you many descendants. Abraham believes the Lord, believes the promise that the Lord will give him many descendants. Does Abraham ever see many descendants? No. As a matter of fact, as far as the promise is concerned, Abraham had multiple sons through concubines. He had one son through Sarah, Isaac. And the Lord says very specifically, it's through Isaac that your descendants will be named. In other words, as far as the promise was concerned, to give you many descendants who will be the, the, the carriers, the bearers of my blessing, Isaac is where they're going to come from. So, as far as the promise was concerned, when Abraham drew his last breath, he had one son according to the promise, and he dies. Isaac is married. Lo and behold, Isaac discovers that his wife is having fertility issues. She can't conceive. They cry out to the Lord. The Lord blesses them with twins, Esau and Jacob. That's it, two sons. 
But the two really are only one son as it concerns the promise because it's not Esau, it's going to be Jacob. And so when Isaac goes to his grave, he's got two sons, but he's only got one son that counts as far as the promise goes. He draws his last breath like his father, only having one promised son. This is not the way the prom, this, this is not the way that you would want the promise to progress. Right? One at a time, that, that's not how you get many. So then Jacob comes on the scene, and Jacob ends up having a dozen. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. But even Jacob draws his last breath with a dozen sons, but not seeing many sons. The men who would receive the promise from the Lord that they would be the fathers of many people, of a great nation, they all went to their grave never seeing that promise fulfilled. But Exodus comes in and says, oh, but look, God did it. Yes, they died. Yes, they, they died clinging to the promise that was not yet fulfilled. But look, look, God did do for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He did do what He said He was going to do. This has to be instructive for us. Hebrews picks up on this theme in chapter 11. When it makes that statement, talking about having just talked about the patriarchs, Hebrews chapter 11, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, by that meaning the fulfillment of the promise. They died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance. That's what faith is. Faith is receiving the Word of God, counting it as true, and seeing the reality of God's promise being fulfilled through the eyes of faith, even when your natural eyes do not see any evidence of the fact that the promise is about to come to fruition. Right? That's our life, people. Now, granted, our life is, on the one hand, similar, but also very different from the patriarchs, because on the one hand, we are able to look back and see how God did fulfill so many promises. And most importantly, we see the promise fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We get to see that God really is faithful to His promises. But let's be honest, and we'll talk about it in a moment here. Let's be honest. There are still promises that we're waiting to see that have not been fulfilled yet. What are you going to do? As you continue to go down the road of life, and as you wait, and as you hope for things that God has promised, I'm not talking about wishes, I'm talking about things that God has actually said that you're counting on, but it just doesn't seem to be coming true. What are you going to do? You going to chuck it? You're going to say, fine, forget it. God's not moving this program along much quicker. The world is offering me a shortcut to get these, this kind of satisfaction and fulfillment and desires that I want satisfied, and I don't have to wait for it. Don't do it. This is a promise that God has made to the patriarchs, but that is only fulfilled after their death. Genesis 12, 2, the Lord says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And then as he goes on, he says in, in the next verse, in verse 3, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God gives a promise to Abraham that's carried by Isaac and Jacob as well, gives a promise to the patriarchs, to his people, but a promise given to them 
for the benefit of the world. And in part, that's also something that we see in Exodus chapter 1. Let me show you how. Look down at verse 7. The sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied. The sons of Israel were fruitful and they multiplied. That sound familiar to anything in Genesis? Genesis 1.28, God creates man and woman. He pronounces a blessing over them. And what is the blessing that He gives to them? Be fruitful and multiply. The Lord wipes the earth clean because of sin and depravity, and He starts over with Noah. You know what He tells Noah when He comes off the boat? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Exodus 1-7, the sons of Israel are being fruitful and are multiplying. The promises, the blessings that God had announced over His creation that was meant to be for all people is now uniquely being fulfilled in this covenant people. But it's not merely the fulfillment of the promise and the blessing and the command, be fruitful and multiply. It's not just simply so that they can be a large number of people. but it is for the benefit of the world. If through Abraham and his descendants, blessing is to come to all the nations, all the families, you need more than a dozen people. You need more than 70 people. If you're going to have some sort of critical mass where you're going to be able to wield some sort of influence or impact on surrounding nations, you need to be a nation yourself that can stand in contrast or in comparison to all the other nations. So God blesses His people. He causes them to be fruitful and multiply as a way to fulfill, to make good on His promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but He makes good on His promise to them for the benefit of the world, because as the world comes into contact with the descendants of Abraham, they get to see something about the God that they worship. There's a missional element to the fulfillment of God's promises to His people. It is not different for us in the New Testament time. Listen to what Jesus says. In Luke 12, 32, Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. You, you hear that? Don't worry, big, large, numerous people impressive crowd. Don't worry, little flock. The Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. How does a little flock that Jesus is addressing in Luke chapter 12 take possession of an entire kingdom? I think a little flock has to grow and become a much bigger flock. If you're going to take, take possession of a kingdom, you're going to need people to populate that kingdom. And it's going to probably take more than just a little flock of people, a little ragtag group. So elsewhere in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 31, Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven, remember the kingdom that's been promised to the little flock? The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that even the birds of the air come and nest in its branches.
why does God grow and build the church? Why does God grow His people from being a little flock to a larger flock? Why, by the time we get to Revelation, does John say, when I look to see the people of God, I saw people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, myriad upon myriad upon myriad, too many to count, and they were all singing praises to the Lord. Why is God growing and building His church? It's not so that we can be fat and happy. I mean, hopefully we're happy. I will throw the fat part out. Hopefully we're happy, but it's not just merely so that we can be pleased or entertained. He blesses us. He gives His promises to us for the good and the benefit of this entire world. He builds His kingdom, including this outpost of the kingdom that we call Edgewood Baptist. He builds this little outpost so that as we grow, as we multiply, as we expand, His blessing then begins to push out along the margins and along the rims and begins to expand, and His kingdom begins to take up more and more real estate in this world, in this earth, until finally, finally at the end, similar to what goes on in Exodus 1, the sons of Israel who were really just a family, who were little more than a family, the sons of Israel now have become a nation, a kingdom to themselves. Finally, one day, this little group of people that started off with 12 or a couple hundred people witnessing the, the death and the resurrection of Christ grows to become a massive kingdom, and the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God. One other place. Turn to Romans chapter 8. At the risk of beating a dead horse, God's blessings to us, God's promises to us for the good and the benefit of the world. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Start at verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of who? The sons of God. Creation, the universe, is waiting for us to be revealed, to be shown to be the sons and daughters of God. Meaning, we don't look like that right now. We don't always act like that, but there's coming a time when we will be what He has promised we will be, and when that happens, something good happens to the universe. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you hear that? The universe is waiting for God's promises to us to be fulfilled because when He fulfills His promises to us, when He brings us into glory, glory gets shared with the entire cosmos, and the creation cannot wait for that day to come. God blesses His people for the good of the nations, for the good of this created order. He has determined and He has chosen that all of the good that He desires and intends and has purposed to bring to this existence is going to be done primarily through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, as it filters in and out through His covenant people. That's what's happening in Exodus as a paradigm or as a pattern for what God does with His church in the New Testament as well. So, in the first paragraph, the introduction, one of the things that we're supposed to see just very clearly is that God has fulfilled His promises to the patriarchs. 
Even though they did not live to see it, God's Word remains. It stands. It was fulfilled in part because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob clung to that promise of many descendants, even when they did not have many descendants, that worked to their benefit and reward. God affirmed them, approved of them, was pleased with that. They were rewarded for their faith. And as the promise to the patriarchs comes into reality and is fulfilled, that fulfillment is for the benefit of all creation. God's intention for this world order is being exercised through His people. Number two, so if God's promise is being fulfilled in this introduction, the second thing that we want to consider is that while God's promise is seen as being fulfilled, number two, God's promise is also seen as progressing. Here's what we mean by that. Going back again to the way that the the paragraph is framed by the phrase sons of Israel in verse 1 and sons of Israel in verse 7. When they are called the sons of Israel in verse 1, sons of Israel is referring to a family group. When you get down to verse 7, sons of Israel is no longer referring to a family group. It's referring to a nation. By the way, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it. By the way, the, one, of the, one of the big questions, big questions. One of the questions that people like to ask, when did Israel begin? Like Israel as a nation, when did Israel begin? Almost everyone would point to the Exodus, right, would say, and and you might differ over the exact point in time. So, some people might say, well, Passover, right, that's when God officially made it abundantly clear that he had separated Israel for himself in contrast to the Egyptians and all the other people. Some people say, well, it was the crossing of the Red Sea. That was like their baptism, right? They passed through the water and came out on the other side saved. Other people would say, well, it's when they, were, when they came to Sinai and they entered into the covenant with their Lord through the, through the giving of the law and everything. I'm not going to quibble about that right now, but, but just want you to just want to point out and maybe give you a nagging little thing to think about as you go. Most everyone sees the birth of the nation as being a little bit later in the Exodus story. It's interesting, though, that in the opening paragraph, that phrase, sons of Israel, that refers to the nation, is already being used to the people here before the Exodus story has really started in earnest. Right, so some of you are like, okay. Right, the point is, there is a sense in which we are being invited to see Israel as a nation pre-Exodus. In other words, God saw them as His nation, as His people, before they actually became a nation. You get that? Similarly, when were you a child of God? When you were born? When you entered into faith? Or is it something like this where God says, well, actually, you are always mine. You may not have known it, you may not have looked like it, but I always had you. You were never getting away. I always had my claim on you, and I saw to it that my promises to you were fulfilled when you were totally oblivious to everything that was happening. That is a good God. Number two, God's promise is progressing. Right, we are on number two. The reason that we say that we're getting a hint of the promise progressing is because one promise points to another. The the growth and the development of the family into a nation 
is, is pointing us back, is reminding us of the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make their descendants a great nation. But of course, as soon as we begin to think about them being a great nation, we're reminded of the fact, oh, but wait, but that's not the only thing that God promised to them. That, that, was, that was central, that He was going to give them many descendants, but He also said I'm going to give you many descendants. I'm going to make you a nation. And to, to that nation, I'm going to give this land. So now we're in Exodus and we're reading the fact that God made good on that promise to create a nation, at least in concept form, here in the opening paragraph. But this nation, if God is going to be true to His Word, has to have somewhere to exist as a nation. Otherwise, they're not a nation. They're just a people group within a nation. You, you see? And we're reminded again. Oh, yeah, over and over and over again. He said to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he would say things to Abraham like when he was in Canaan, Genesis chapter 13. Abraham, lift up your eyes and look north and south and east and west. To you and your descendants, I will give this land. Descendants are here now. That promise has been fulfilled. Now that that promise has been fulfilled, you know what it causes us to do? It causes us to say in a biblically greedy sort of way, okay, but what about the next promise? That's the only time that greed is acceptable. I say that tongue-in-cheek. It's not really greed, right? It's delighting in God's truthfulness and His promises. He makes good on this promise so that we begin to think, well, it can't be that the story just runs through Egypt the entire time. They have to go somewhere else in order for God to remain true to His Word. You ever notice how in the Christian life, recognizing one promise that God has made good on doesn't really satisfy you. It just sort of whets your appetite for more. No one? So, here, so for example, God promises that He will justify the ungodly that sinners can be pardoned and forgiven, not because of anything that they do, but because of the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, who stands in our place. He will justify them. He will declare them to be right in their standing before Him. Is that all He promises? Edgewood, please. Is that all He promises? No along with the promise that He will declare us to be righteous, He also promises to sanctify us, that is, to make us righteous. My dilemma, not dilemma, my, the challenge, the tension, the frustration that I feel in the Christian life, and I think you feel it too, I think any child of God in some way identifies with this frustration. To the extent that I believe that God has made the promise of justification true in the finished work of Jesus Christ, in His death and resurrection, to the extent that I can say, God now in Christ has declared that I am right before Him. Now, I don't just want to be declared right, I want to be right. I don't just want to be free from the penalty of sin. I want to be free from the power of sin. Ultimately, I want to be free from the presence of sin. The promise that God gives to His people whets our appetite. It reminds us of the fact that God is progressively fulfilling His promises such that because He has made good on these promises, 
on the one hand, it increases our desire and our appetite to see the other promises fulfilled. But, as the, but when they're not being fulfilled at the rate at which I want it to be fulfilled, I have to go back and look in part and say, but he was good on those promises. He'll be good here too. 1 Thessalonians, here's a classic example, perfect example of what we're talking about. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 through 24. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, completely. May your spirit and soul and body be completely preserved without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, he also will bring it to pass. You hear that? I, I know that he's called me, right? The, the fact that I would want righteousness, the fact that I would want to go to God is itself evidence of the fact that he called me to himself. It's evidence that he called you. Because apart from his call, apart from him drawing us to himself, we don't want to have anything to do with God. But once he's called us and we start to be drawn in to the love and the glory and the beauty of God, oh, we want so much more. David says in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I say, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to taste and see, but I want to do more than taste. I want to devour. I want to feast. And God is good. He's faithful. He gives us what we need. I don't want to doubt that, but I, I want to acknowledge, I want to admit that the more we encounter the truthfulness and the faithfulness of God and His promises, the more eager and hungry it makes us to know more. When we look in Exodus chapter 1 and we see, look, God was faithful to His Word. He promised that He would make many descendants out of this small group of people. He promised to make a nation. And when we see that He did that, then we're inevitably drawn to the fact, but He promised more than that. Isn't He going to give more than that? And Exodus is the start of that answer. So the last thing that we'll say is this, in the sense that God's promise is still progressing, that He has made a nation out of a family, that that nation stands to gain a place, a home, a land. One of the things I think that's happening, not just in this paragraph, or when this paragraph leads us to, to ask, is, why aren't they already there? Here's where it's helpful again, going back to Genesis. You remember why they went to Egypt, right? Why did, why did they go to Egypt originally? Why did Jacob and his family go down to Egypt? Famine. They're in Egypt for 400 years. There is not a global famine that lasts for 400 years. Why didn't Jacob and his family go down into Egypt, wait out the famine, and then after the famine, head back? Well, one, right, we can say, well, that was God's plan. All the way back in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, know this for certain, Abraham, that your descendants are going to be strangers in a foreign land where they're going to be oppressed. They'll be there for 400 years. I don't know if that means slavery for 400 years, but they'll be there for 400 years. After that, I'll bring them out. I'll bring them back into this land for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. In other words, they're waiting where they are for the fulfillment of the promise of a homeland because God is doing His work elsewhere 
with other people. So let's say this. People, don't think that while you're waiting for God to develop and fulfill His promise to you, don't think that just because you don't see anything happening, God is not working. The arrogance of that kind of thought in my heart, if I don't see it, that must mean that God is not holding up His end, that God is not doing something. I'm such a pathetic, finite creature. I can't see outside of this room, and I'm going to declare that because I don't see it, God's not doing anything else? No, He's doing His work elsewhere. That's one of the reasons. Here's the other thing that I think we might also want to consider. This is not as clear. This is maybe reading between the lines, so I'm going to be real careful here, okay? This is not inspired by any stretch of the imagination. Not only is there a way to look at it from the divine perspective, well, they, they stayed there for that long because God was doing His work in Canaan, allowing these other nations to fill up their sin so that they would be ready for judgment. But we also might want to consider that from a human perspective, maybe the reason that Jacob and his family, or generation two or three, didn't leave Egypt and go back to Canaan is because they got comfortable in Egypt. And listen, we don't have to look down our noses at them and think, those stupid, pity, you know, petty people. Right? If, if you're in the land and you seem to think that, if you're in Egypt and you seem to think that God is blessing you, right? You, you as a people group, you are prolific and you are exponentially growing, why would I want to move? I'm going to stay here. Life is good here. We're making, we're making a go of it. Is it possible that one of the reasons that God brings another man, another Pharaoh, onto the scene, which we'll read about next week, to subject them to slavery, to affliction, to oppression, is it possible that God does that so that His people will be eager to leave Egypt? Let me cut to the chase. Is it possible that in our suffering… And in our affliction, in our times of testing and trial, is it possible that one of the reasons that God brings that our way is so that we will find this world, this land, thoroughly unsatisfying? So that the more we encounter grief, the more that we encounter sorrow, the more that we see of injustice in the world. And listen, I'm not trying to excuse that, say, because the, the, as if the ends justifies the means. But there is a sense in which the more we come to see rightly the glory that is to be ours in the future compared with the groanings and the weight and the burden of this life, the more eager we become to be done with this land. So in Hebrews 13, the author of Hebrews says, because Jesus suffered outside of the gate, outside of the city, outside of Jerusalem, let us also go out to Him bearing His reproach. For here... We don't have a lasting city, but we're looking for the city that's to come. I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you to consider that for all of the grief and all of the sorrow that we experience in this world, yes, God is good and righteous. Yes, God is going to bring an end to that. It will not always be this way but that it may actually be a severe kind of mercy that the Lord uses to cause us to become more eager for our true home. And this is not it. You can call this whatever you want. You can call it your Egypt. You can call it your wilderness. But this is not home. This is not where our citizenship resides.
So not only is God going to be faithful to fulfill every promise at the right time, such that we can see it, such that we can know it, and we can enjoy it. We see it most clearly in the finished work, the promise fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We also know that the work that He's begun is a work in progress, and that even now, just like He's doing with the Israelites here, the sons of Israel, He is preparing us for more promises to come, and we can trust Him for it. Bow with me in prayer. Father, would you give us the grace to be able to hold in balance the already and not yet aspects of our faith? To be able to say with confidence that we are already experiencing the goodness of the Lord through the person of Jesus Christ by your Holy Spirit, and yet to also say, but we are not yet encountering or experiencing all of the glory that will be ours. Help us, Father, to continue to return to your word over and over again. And as you show yourself in your word to be faithful and dependable and true, we ask that you would give us a greater confidence in the things that we find there, that we would become more steadfast in our confession of Jesus Christ, not only as Savior and Lord, but as coming King. Help us as we look to Jesus and what he has already accomplished to eagerly anticipate more victory, more gift, more blessing in His return. Father, hold us and keep us. Don't let us waver in unbelief. Don't let us drift in disappointment or sorrow or grief, but make Your Holy Spirit hold us fast, we ask. Do it for Your glory. Do it for the good of Your people and for this world that You have created to display Your glory to us. We ask it in Your name. Amen. A Psalm of David, Psalm chapter 39, verses 1 through 7. I said to myself, I will watch what I do and not sin in what I say. I will hold my tongue when the ungodly are around me. But as I stood there in silence, not even speaking of good things, the turmoil within me grew worse. The more I thought about it, the hotter I got, ignited a fire of words. Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that the days, that my days are numbered. How fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you at best. Each of us is but a breath. We are merely moving shadows, and all our busy rushing ends is nothing. We heap up wealth, not knowing who will spend it. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. Let's stand and rejoice. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? that our souls to him belong who holds our days within his hands what comes apart from his command and what will keep us to the end the love of christ on which i stand oh sing Hope springs eternal, oh, sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess, Christ our hope in life and death. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good, God is good. Where is His grace and goodness known? 
in a great Redeemer's blood, who sends our faith when fears arise, who stands above the stormy trial, who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ. Oh, sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal, oh, sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess, Christ our hope in life and death. Unto the grave what shall we see? Christ is ours forevermore. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Oh, sing our hope in life and death now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death yes we do want to remind you before you leave that we do have a wana tonight for our little ones 530 and uh, Todd Pruitt uh, all the way from Germany uh, we hope to have a great crowd to support him tonight at six o'clock a Q&A and a time of prayer and hear our benediction, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed. Say.